Preamble Congress of the United States, begun and held at the City of New York on Wednesday, the 4th of March, 1789. The conventions of a number of the states, having at the time of their adopting the Constitution expressed a desire in order to prevent misconstruction or abuse of its powers, that further declaratory and restrictive clauses should be added, and as extending the ground of public confidence in the government will best ensure the beneficent ends of its institution. Resolved by the Senate and House of Representatives of the United States of America, in Congress assembled, two-thirds of both houses concurring, that the following articles be proposed to the legislatures of the several states as amendments to the Constitution of the United States, all or any of which articles, when ratified by three-fourths of the said legislatures, to be valid to all intents and purposes as part of the said Constitution, viz. Articles in addition to and amendment of the Constitution of the United States of America proposed by Congress and ratified by the legislatures of the several states pursuant to the fifth article of the original Constitution. Amendment 1. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press, or the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. Amendment 2. A well-regulated militia, being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms, shall not be infringed. Amendment 3. No soldier shall, in time of peace, be quartered in any house without the consent of the owner, nor in time of war, but in a manner to be prescribed by law. Amendment 4. The right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated, and no warrants shall issue but upon probable cause, supported by oath or affirmation, and particularly describing the place to be searched and the persons or things to be seized. Amendment 5. No person shall be held to answer for a capital or otherwise infamous crime, unless on a presentment or indictment of a grand jury, except in cases arising in the land or naval forces, or in the militia, when in actual service in time of war or public danger. Nor shall any person be subject for the same offense to be twice put in jeopardy of life or limb nor shall be compelled in any criminal case to be a witness against himself, nor be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor shall private property be taken for public use without just compensation. Amendment 6. In all criminal prosecutions, the accused shall enjoy the right to a speedy and public trial by an impartial jury of the state and district wherein the crime shall have been committed, which district shall have been previously ascertained by law, and to be informed of the nature and cause of the accusation, to be confronted with the witnesses against him, to have compulsory process for obtaining witnesses in his favor, and to have the assistance of counsel for his defense. Amendment 7. 
in suits at common law, where the value in controversy shall exceed $20, the right of trial by jury shall be preserved, and no fact tried by a jury shall be otherwise re-examined in any court of the United States than according to the rules of the common law. Amendment 8. Excessive bail shall not be required, nor excessive fines imposed, nor cruel and unusual punishments inflicted. Amendment 9. The enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. Amendment 10. The powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution, nor prohibited by it to the states, are reserved to the states respectively or to the people. Episode 25, Stumbling Onto Democracy. It's hard to overstate the impact Prince Harry the Navigator had on Portuguese history. Portugal was a small kingdom as European kingdoms went, but the income Prince Henry gained from the African slave trade helped to fund Portugal's continuing ocean-going exploration and eventually Vasco da Gama's discovery of a maritime route to India. This would eventually lead to the incredibly important and lucrative establishment of the Portuguese trading colony at Macau, an important trading relationship with Japan, brief control over the Japanese city of Nagasaki, and, most important, the establishment of what would grow into the huge colony of Brazil with its slave-based economy. This gave Portugal very considerable wealth for such a small country. Spain, of course, capitalized on its discovery of the New World, obtaining massive amounts of gold and silver from conquering and plundering the Aztec and Inca empires and others. Also important for the Spanish was the discovery of the mountain at Potosí, now in the nation of Bolivia. This was sometimes called the Mountain of Silver for its unimaginable deposits of silver ore. A silver mine was established there in 1556, and over the next couple of centuries, over 45,000 tons of silver was extracted from the mountain. Yes, of course, by slave labor working under atrocious conditions. The wealth extracted from this mine kept Spain one of the richest countries in Europe during this period. Both the Spanish and Portuguese colonies were heavily dependent on slave labor for both their mining and encomienda agricultural systems. Spain and Portugal used very hierarchical governing systems based on local governors that maintained strict and very oppressive governing systems. The power in both these systems flowed strictly from the king down. This system required quite a bit of capital to pay for all the military, local governors, and lesser officials that are required to run the colonies. Portugal and Spain could do this because they extracted enough wealth from their colonies to pay for their governing systems. Spain and Portugal were the first countries to establish colonies overseas, 
so they claimed the best real estate. England, as an island country, was a seagoing country, so they got into the colonial game, but they were second-tier colonialists. By the time they were able to establish themselves overseas, Central and South America were already claimed as Spanish and Portuguese colonies. England established colonies in North America, but it appeared at the time that they were not as lucky as their southern European neighbors, as North America didn't have resources like gold and silver that were readily extractable, like the Spanish and Portuguese colonies in Central and South America. Still, these colonies served a purpose, as one resource North America had in abundance was arable land, which was very attractive to many English who couldn't afford their own land in England. Jamestown, the first permanent English colony in America, was established in 1607. The English North American colonies would serve to ease population pressures on England by attracting large number of English. Well over a million English settlers would emigrate from England to North America from the founding of Jamestown until 1776. It's worth noting that significant numbers of non-English Europeans also immigrated to the North American colonies as well. The English colonies were a polyglot mixture of different cultures then, from what we know as the Pennsylvania Dutch, who were mostly German, who began their immigration to America following the devastation of the Thirty Years' War, to Irish, to the approximately 50,000 English convicts who were transported to America and auctioned off to plantation owners. Not only were the colonists a mix of different nationalities, they were a mix of very different cultures from within England itself. Many were typical English from various walks of life, but by the colonial period, the Reformation had ensured that very different religious sects would be entrenched in England, including Catholic, Puritans, and Quakers. The Pilgrims were famously Puritan separatists who left England for Holland. They were fiercely independent, however, and chafed under even the relatively libertarian rule in Holland. They eventually settled in Plymouth Harbor after coming to North America on the Mayflower. As religious separatists, they were interested in governing themselves and weren't looking for a top-down system of government such as the Spanish and Portuguese had imposed on colonies in South America. Then there was William Penn, a wealthy and very well-connected Quaker. His father had given the English king, Charles II, a large loan, which the king settled by granting William Penn a large section in the North American colonies after William's father died. William named his new colony Sylvania, which means woods in Latin. Charles later changed it to Pennsylvania in honor of William's father. Both the Pilgrims and William Penn were outgroups in England's religious culture. They both had strong motivation to establish self-governing colonies in which no government would be able to control their worship. They had very different approaches. The pilgrims were Puritans, wanted to set their own rules about worship and have a community in which everyone followed their strict dogmatic rules. William Penn was an early adopter of the idea of religious liberty and set up a colony in which there was freedom of religion for all colonists. 
both the quakers and the puritans had broken away from the church of england and had begun their own religious sects that grew quickly in england the idea that religious liberty is a good thing would catch on slowly over the seventeenth and nineteenth centuries and was still in its infancy in england when charles the second signed the charter of pennsylvania in sixteen eighty one Breakaway groups, such as the Quakers, were not favored, and the Puritans had just staged a civil war, which tried and executed the king and installed Oliver Cromwell, a Puritan, as what was called Lord Protector of England. Some have likened him to a dictator. At any rate, the republic set up under Cromwell didn't last very long and was unpopular. It was still very recent in the English memory at the time, and Puritans weren't popular following the short-lived Republic. It's therefore likely that Charles II was happy to grant Puritans and Quakers the freedom they desired in the Americas in order to siphon off religious misfits from England. But allowing religious freedom wasn't the only reason that the English crown granted self-governance in the English colonies. In fact, it wasn't the main reason. It turns out that all the British colonies in America were granted a large degree of autonomy in governing themselves. There are a couple of reasons for this. I think the first can be traced all the way back to the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms of the Dark Ages following the fall of the Roman Empire. These kings grew out of a tribal culture in which chiefs were elected and could lose their power if they displeased tribal members. This led to a culture of kings being initially installed by their powerful noble allies, but also being reliant on the support of these allies once they were in power. There was always a symbiosis between English kings and the powerful nobles who supported them. English kings never made it too far if they upset these nobles. The ruthless and selfish and very unpopular King John found this out in 1215, when he had gone too far and angered his dukes. Marquises and earls. They forced him to sign the Magna Carta, which limited the power of the king and guaranteed certain rights to the English people, from the requirement that fish traps be removed from rivers in England, to the fact that the king could not levy taxes without the consent of a gathering of nobles we now know as Parliament. The Magna Carta had a very off again, on again history under the English kings with some powerful kings ignoring it entirely, and Parliament dusting it off and enforcing it again under other weaker and unpopular kings. Still, there was always the idea the government was a two-way street in England. The crown, of course, could set the law, but the nobles, or Parliament, could also enforce their rights against the crown. Throughout the Middle Ages, from the 13th century on, Parliament continued to grow in power. So. By the time we reach the 17th century, during the 1680s when we're talking about here, England had a tradition of giving people a say in their government. In Parliament, this included both the House of Lords, which was for English peers or nobles, and the House of Commons, which is comprised of non-nobles. So by the time the colonies were becoming established in the 15th and 16th centuries, granting local governments a certain degree of self-governance was a well-established custom in England. This was not so much the case in countries with traditions of absolutist monarchies like France and Spain. 
It would be easy to take this too far, however. English kings were aware of the political realities in their country, and they knew they couldn't overstep their powers. But they hadn't granted Parliament its powers, such as its powers over taxation, because they believed in democracy. They had generally only conceded powers after losing political battles, such as the one between King John and his nobles. English kings had no desire to grant colonies excessive powers more than counties within England might possess. So, there must have been another reason for them to allow colonies so much self-autonomy. And there was. It was pretty simple. As I mentioned before, Spain and Portugal's heavy-handed colonial governments in which everything was strictly controlled by the monarch were very expensive to run, which required an income stream from their colonies in the form of silver and gold, which allowed them to maintain order in their colonies and to pay for their governance. My reading of English colonial history during this period convinces me that English monarchs would have loved to impose a much more authoritarian government on the colonies. But it didn't make sense to impose such an expensive government on the colonies that had no reliable income stream. So, what was a money-conscious English monarch to do? The answer, of course, was to allow the colonies to become largely self-governing. They were nominally subject to the English monarch. But the more authority the crown exerted over the colonies, the more money it would have to spend in terms of bureaucrats, ministers, soldiers, etc. So the practicalities of this situation meant that the colonies were left to govern themselves to a degree that was unusual in the 17th and 18th centuries. The colonies developed different personalities. The northern colonies, with their harsh winters and rockier soil, had smaller farms which allowed people to live closer together. Their economies were based mostly on exporting unfinished products such as furs and timber to England. They developed a strong fishing industry, which led to a strong shipbuilding industry as well. Famously, New Englanders became world famous for their whaling. Towns tended to be smaller and closer-knit than larger cities in the middle colonies. People lived closer together there than in other colonies. Therefore, the town meeting became the staple of governments in New England colonies. People, yes, mostly men, would come together on a regular basis and debate local issues in a church or meeting hall and decide on how the town would be governed. This meant that regular citizens would meet unpaid and decide how their day-to-day -day life would be governed. It gave the government of New England a very grassroots democracy flavor. The middle colonies had a somewhat better growing season and better farmland. These colonies became the North American colony's breadbasket and shipped large amounts of excess grain to Europe. The colony's largest cities, New York and Boston, were located here, and in addition to larger and more fertile farms, the Middle Colonies were the main center of manufacturing and shipping for colonial America. Boston, in particular, benefited from the triangular trade and developed into a major shipping port. The triangular trade was the name for the shipping routes that took merchant ships from England to Africa to pick up slaves, sail them to America, pick up timber, furs, and goods, and return to England. Yes. There will be more in slavery in a later podcast. 
With later cities, there came larger local governments and paid politicians. There were three types of colonies. Royal colonies, such as New York, New Hampshire, the Carolinas, and Georgia, that were owned directly by the king. The king appointed governors who oversaw the government of these colonies. Then there were proprietary colonies, such as Pennsylvania, Maryland, and Delaware, in which the king made grants of huge tracts of land to individuals in return for political or financial favors. These individuals then oversaw the establishment of governments in these colonies. And finally, there were colonies such as Virginia, Rhode Island, and Connecticut, where the king granted the land to a joint stock company, which was then responsible for seeing that the colony was adequately governed. Because of the reasons I've mentioned above, all of these types of colonies ended up with democratic self-governing institutions to one degree or another. The southern colonies tended to be grants of massive tracts of land to very small groups of very rich, well-connected nobles. Unsurprisingly, these nobles wrote colonial charters that encouraged huge plantations to be established and supported. The southern colonies, therefore, tended to be controlled by oligarchies. Remember that this was what we've called the Second Axis. Ideas about democracy, bicameralism, freedom of religion, natural laws, and the triumph of the human intellect guided people like William Penn and many others who were setting up the charters that established colonial governments. These were not ideas that troubled Spanish or Portuguese crowns when they drafted their colonial charters. Again, English monarchs didn't grant colonists self-autonomy because they opposed monarchical government. They did it mostly because they couldn't afford to impose more authoritarian regimes on colonies half a world away. As far as I can tell, this was probably true for most lawmakers in Parliament as well. Though those in Parliament firmly believed in their democratic powers, I think most of them felt that the colonists were subjects of the English government, under authority of the King and Parliament, but not entitled to representation like a true Englishman. All colonies were, in one way or another, under authority of the crown, and English monarchs did exercise their authority over the colonies. But since controlling the colonists' daily lives would mean the English government would have to pay for ministers, constables, and functionaries to do so, their laws focused on things like the mercantilist system. This was pre-Adam Smith, and British economic thinking at this point was that economies were a zero-sum game. If you and I enter into a business transaction, which I profit greatly from, then I must have gotten the better of you, and you must have suffered as a result of our deal. This kind of thinking led to their mercantilist system, which, among other things, outlawed the export of colonial goods to anywhere other than English ports, where they could be taxed by the crown. This kind of thinking certainly did act as a drag on the creation of American industry. However, the American coastline was long and hard to patrol, and the economic incentive to export to countries other than England, who were willing to pay good prices for American goods and resources, was strong. Illicit exports to third-party nations were therefore not uncommon. Mercantilists saw wealth in terms of gold and silver. A country's wealth 
was determined by its gold and silver holding. Countries therefore competed to obtain as much of that wealth as possible. This led to very restrictive policies on colonial exports. Colonists were only allowed to transport their exports on British ships. These were sent to England, who processed these raw resources exported by the colonies into finished goods, then would export the finished goods to the colonies, which were often prohibited by law from manufacturing these goods themselves. In this way, more gold and silver would flow into England when the manufactured goods, with their value added, were purchased by the colonists. Through this mercantilist system, then, the English made what income they could from the English colonies. Then came the French and Indian War, from 1754 to 1763. This war was fought to defend the colonies. It consumed 60% of Britain's annual budget and left England £132 million in debt. England, therefore, felt that it made no sense to have colonies that were such a drag on the national treasury. Would it not make sense that the colonists who had been saved by England's army in the French and Indian War pay for at least part of their own defense? Parliament, therefore, levied what they felt were some reasonable taxes so that the colonists could pay for some of the debt that had saved their bacon. Who could argue with that? Would it help if I told you that one of these taxes was the Stamp Act, by which the colonists were taxed for imported British tea? Yeah, you got it. The colonists were incensed. The modern-day Tea Party movement began as a reaction against what they felt as excessive taxation by the federal government, but that completely misses the point of the original Tea Partiers, whose rallying cry was, no taxation without representation. As far as I can tell, the colonists didn't have a gripe with the idea that they pay for part of their own defense. What miffed them was that they didn't have a say in it at all. After over a hundred years of democracy in the American colonies, the idea that they should have a say in their own governance was by then part of their DNA. England's mercantilist rules, like requiring the colonies to send exports on British ships, didn't affect the average colonist in his or her daily life. But with a ubiquitous taste for tea in the colonies, the taxing of tea suddenly affected the average everyday colonist. Remember, back then, the average colonist considered him or herself a good loyal subject of Great Britain. But now, being told they had to pay taxes, but had no say in whether they did so and how much they should pay, for the first time made them feel like second-rate British citizens, and it didn't sit well with them at all. There's much more to the story of the American Revolution. We don't have time for it here, so I'll have to leave that to someone else's podcast. But our point is that democracy grew up organically in the colonies, and when, after generations of local democratic rule, the colonists were made to feel that they were subjects of an absolute monarchy. Rather than citizens with a voice in government, they rebelled. It's why we sing God Bless America rather than God Save the Queen. You know the rest of the story. In 1770, a British army detachment opened fire and killed protesters in what became known as the Boston Massacre. In 1773, the Boston Tea Party. 
1774, the Intolerable Acts designed to intimidate Massachusetts and get them to stop being rebellious only unified the colonies in their opposition against England and served as a catalyst to convene the First Continental Congress. 1775, Patrick Henry utters the famous line, I know not what course others may take, but as for me, give me liberty or give me death, in a church in Richmond, Virginia. Paul Revere takes his famous ride, and the first shots of what will become the Revolutionary War are fired, and the Americans win a moral victory at the Battle of Bunker Hill. Then, in January of 1776, Thomas Paine pens his immortal pamphlet, Common Sense. And on July 4th, the Continental Congress adopts the Declaration of Independence. were colonists who believed deeply in their democratic rights. In a sense, they were the monster that Britain had created. Britain always saw them as subjects of the crown. Britain never granted them democracy because it thought that it was the best form of government. It just kind of happened by default because it was the only way Britain could afford to govern them. But American colonists knew democracy in some degree or other for virtually all of their colonial period. You could say that America is an accidental democracy, that democracy had been in our blood from the very beginning. It's why we began this podcast with the Bill of Rights. You might even want to listen to it again. This time, not as the Bill of Rights we all know and appreciate as our basic rights enshrined by the Constitution, but as the most revolutionary document of its day. Voltaire, Montesquieu, Rousseau, and Locke had all pretty much done their thing by then. Much of what has been written in what we've called the Second Axis was truly revolutionary, as these philosophers were rethinking society, our world, and our place in it, what we've been calling the cosmos. Then came the Bill of Rights in 1791, the Constitution had been hammered out in very difficult political battles between May and September of 1787, but it needed to be ratified by the states and ran into difficulties because these states wanted a Constitution that guaranteed rights to the people. So it was back to the drawing board for the drafters, and they came up with a list of rights guaranteed to the American people, including freedom of religion, freedom of speech, the right to be free from unreasonable searches and seizures, the right to due process of law, to trial by jury, and to be free from cruel and unusual punishments, among others. Most of the rights listed in the Bill of Rights had been advocated by Montesquieu, Rousseau, and others. But the Bill of Rights wasn't a document written by a philosopher advocating what government should do. This was a document written by a national government actively guaranteeing these rights to all of its citizens. This is why this was a completely revolutionary document. No government had ever guaranteed its citizens anything close to the rights guaranteed to U.S. citizens under this Bill of Rights. When we discussed Athenian democracy, I talked about the power of chaos, that is, 
what happens when you allow a country's best and brightest minds to freely communicate and share ideas. For the philosophically-minded Athenians, this led to an incredible flowering of philosophy. For the practically-minded Romans, this led to a thousand-year empire that was far better run than the vast majority of ancient empires. In Athens and Rome, the best and brightest minds came together in those cities and interacted and enjoyed the benefits that come from interacting with other bright, creative minds. By the time of the Revolution, American colonies had been practicing democracy for over 150 years. This gave them lots of time to confer and discuss with one another. The colonies were much more spread out than Athens, and though the Roman Empire was spread out, the best and brightest minds eventually made their way to Rome where they could interact. The colonies didn't have a central city that attracted all of the great colonial minds. What it did have was an incredibly active system of correspondence. We would be amazed today if we were to look in on the correspondence of pretty much any intelligent, well-read colonist. It was pretty common to carry on a very active correspondence with numerous fellow intelligentsia members from throughout the colonies. If you're curious about the breadth and scope that this correspondence could entail, as well as the daily life as a colonist farmer, I recommend the book Letters from an American Farmer by Hector St. John de Crevecoeur to give you not only a taste of the intellectual life of many colonists, but a very good flavor of what life was like for a reasonably well-off colonial farmer. People know what they grow up with. The early colonists came from England and thought of themselves as English. After 150 years of colonial life that was significantly more democratic than life in England, colonialists took their freedoms for granted. Town meetings, as well as strong and active correspondence that flourished throughout the colonies, cemented these ideas of freedom and democracy as the national or colonial zeitgeist. This grew to a point that when the British government began to impose taxes and restrictions that earlier colonists would undoubtedly have accepted as being part of Great Britain, these later colonists rebelled. We can't leave this period of American history, though, without talking about the great advantage the North American colonies had over the Spanish and Portuguese colonies in South America. That is, they didn't have gold or silver. Should there have been significant deposits of gold or silver found in North America, the British crown would certainly have imposed a much more authoritarian governing system, as it would have had the means to pay for it. If the northern colonies had possessed gold and silver as England had hoped, the historical drivers that would have been in play would have been completely different. The economy in North America would have been an extractive economy like the economies in South America. That is, colonists would only have been needed for mining and overseeing the mining of gold and silver and for growing the food that would have been needed. Slavery would certainly have been a far more significant portion of the population than it was in the early North American colonies. Without gold and silver, colonists were left to their own devices to thrive. That is, they could only thrive economically if they produced some kind of product with value added. 
They might farm and produce food that wouldn't have been there without their farm, or be a silversmith and produce luxury goods for the well-to-do to purchase, a cobbler producing shoes, or a carpenter building houses. That is, their driver was not to extract wealth, but to create it. With an entire nation producing value like this, the United States, by the end of the Revolutionary War, had created a self-perpetuating economy that would remain long after the South American gold and silver mines stopped being productive. By the end of the colonial period, then, the colonies had set a good foundation for a capitalist economy to grow from, what in an earlier podcast I referred to as a pre-capitalist economy. During the colonial period, no one understood the concept of capitalism as we understand it today. England was motivated by the theory of mercantilism. That is, the nation that accumulates the most gold and silver wins. This was completely wrong. Portugal extracted significant amounts of silver and gold from its colonies, yet managed to default on its debt three times. Spain, who extracted enormous amounts of silver and gold, managed to default on its national debts four times in the 16th century. Sometimes, history provides convergences. The British mercantilist system had, to some degree, prevented capitalism from developing in the colonies any more than it did. To some degree, this was due to England just being greedy and wanting to extract as much from the colonies as it could. To some degree, it was just their mercantilist thinking and not understanding how economies really work. In 1776, then, the colonies signed the Declaration of Independence and unleashed the full potential for capitalism in the U.S. economy. In one of those convergences of history, Adam Smith published his Wealth of Nations, also in 1776, and explained to the world how a capitalist economy works with its laws of supply and demand and the invisible hand of the marketplace. Freed from the restrictive hand of British mercantilism preventing free exports and trade between the colonies, the colonies were now free to develop into a full-fledged capitalist industrial economy, which it would do in about 50 or 60 years. There are too many great books to choose just one. I'll give you a choice between two and you can pick. The first, the autobiography of Benjamin Franklin. Yeah, he's that interesting. Easy read and totally worth it. The second, not as easy a read, but even more worth it, American Slavery, American Freedom by Edmund Morgan. I was about three quarters into the book, and I decided that it was a case of deceptive advertising. At that point, there were still only five or six slaves in the book. I changed my mind by the end. It never did cover what it was like to be a slave anything close to the degree that I had expected. But by the end of the book, you get great insight into what was in the mind of slaveholders in early Virginia and why slavery developed there. For those who might wonder, why would we Americans ever develop such a brutal institution as slavery? This is your book. Enjoy. See you next week.